Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you um, like our content, we would appreciate if you liked and subscribed to our YouTube channel and feel free to follow us on any of our social medias as well. It is an honor today to have on Reverend Matthew Burris um, from Tanglewood Baptist Church. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. And this doesn't turn into the what not to do episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, so we'll just kind of dive right in your story and ministry from the time you started and, you know, what you interrupted, what you're doing now. Well, I'll kind of uh, start at the beginning. I guess my story is not unlike many, but I guess it is different. I, um, when I think about my call to ministry, I think of uh, words of uh, Dr. W.A. Criswell. He said that he felt like he was called to preach uh, before he became a Christian. And uh, sometimes I think back and uh, think that there was a recognized something um, that I would identify now as a call um, about the same time that I became a Christian. When I was 10 years old, you know, recently got involved in a local church. They had a revival meeting, a Tuesday night revival. Um, you know, I came to faith in Christ. And from that point on, I've it always sensed a call and really specifically the pastoral ministry. And the, and that's not really something I don't have ever really shared that, um, that you, you recognize that that's there and you really don't know what to do. Um, I did not uh, necessarily pursue vocational ministry. I kind of knew it was there. I did other things um, was geared more to, going to business school, doing something else. I got to a place, and I don't remember how old I was, uh, about 19, and um, I just felt that, uh, that it was a certain call. And I really had a just a prayer, if, if this is what the Lord wants me to do, he's going to have to open the opportunity. Because I'll I'll go back just a little bit. I, you know, I served in ministry I, in music ministry. I was twelve, playing bass in the church. That's kind of my comfort zone. Being in the corner, not having to talk to people, um, just doing uh, my thing. Uh, my dad was is a retired um, minister, and at that time he was uh, evangelizing. We would do revivals. My church had a uh, my home church had a great uh, homeless ministry that we would go and minister, and, and he would sing and preach. So that was a lot of my uh, ministry experience. And, uh, you know, the whole time all that's going on, you kind of towards leading you to do right. something. So, and I still don't know how it happened, but it did. And uh, I was, uh, I had an opportunity to preach a Wednesday night and a Sunday morning. And I just never really stopped. I contacted churches, um, would do pulpit supply, eventually led to uh, doing some long-term interim transitional work. And then uh, my previous church was my first church, I guess you would say officially, um, where I served five years. Um, I began there as an interim uh, and they wanted to keep me. I, did, I had felt at the beginning that the Lord had called me there. And then really um, had no intention of leaving. And we received the call to come down here to Tanglewood. And we put them through a long process of waiting. And then COVID happened in the middle of that. But we just felt that um, my wife and I, that we, uh, it was just a, a difficult decision because of some of the logistics and, and just some of the practical things. But um, ultimately, uh, and I think that now, three years in, um, it shows that the Lord was in that. He was leading in that. So that's where I currently serve. Right. Definitely. 12 years old. I, I think that's the lowest. I, so that's the youngest I've heard. You started in, in um, ministry at 12, playing the bass at that. That's got to be, that was, that was pretty cool. I mean, are you, would you say you're also music ministry oriented as well? Along with I am. I just didn't inherit the gift of saying. Right. So, if not, I'd probably do it in music ministry. So, you know, I, I, I just enjoyed that because that was a way for, 
me to serve. Um, and plus, I enjoy the music. And and really and truly, it is the you do not have to talk to people. I, I um, every church I've served in knows I'm very reserved person. I'm not very outgoing. I don't uh, like to be in front of people, and uh, especially smaller groups of people make me very nervous, you know, right. to speak. And uh, right. I, I've used that line in sermons many times. I would much rather preach to a crowd of hundreds than I would teach Sunday school class just because of something about that. Now, it gets better with time, you know, and you get more used to dealing with people. But that was a um, that was one of those things that even with a, a call to ministry, I'm so introverted, you don't want to, you don't share that with anyone. Um, and it's difficult to discuss those spiritual things or your spiritual thoughts or or what the, is going on. I'm just not that type of person. But um, I guess in all that, or whatever he wants, he's right. You know, he can communicate to to you however your personality. Is. Right, certainly. I mean, my dad um, would would probably say the same thing that he was introverted when he came in, and um, that that was not his intention to to go into the into the pastoral ministry. Um, just because, you know, it, it, it is a lot of that. It's a lot of those one-on-one conversations, many of the difficult conversations that, um, that no one wants to have, but, but, but they're needed. So, I mean, I understand that, but it's evidence of God, you know, working, which, which is, which is great. I mean, also you said that your dad was a minister. Kind of think about that because I imagine, you know, as your dad being a minister, you see a lot of, of what the pros of ministry, but also maybe the, the negatives, the, the emotional toll it takes on a man. You kind of saw that before you actually went into it. Can you talk about that? Well, a little bit. And my experience is probably a lot different than yours because my my dad had pastored um, before I was born. Um, he had spent uh, some time not really active in ministry uh, in, in my childhood years. And really, uh, when we began attending my home church is Crestview Baptist in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, when we began attending there, that was really uh, put him right back into ministry and being involved in the church. But I did really uh, get a front review just because of, of his involvement there and uh, was very close to the pastor that came when I was 13. This is his 20th year there. Um, and I've gotten to observe what he did and uh, you know he's still a resource um and 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 know some of what was going on but but that's one of those things that you know we can observe uh you know the toll on on a person that's serving in ministry whatever um, it may be but there's nothing that uh there's nothing like the actual experience. I kind of, I knew what to expect. Right. Quote, unquote. You have a certain expectation that things aren't going to be easy, um, that there are going to be difficult things. You've seen people hurt in ministry. I, um, I could tell a couple stories about that, you know, early on in life that I remember now. But uh, how... The church can be vicious to people, especially that are in ministry. But there is something different when you're in that role, um, and that uh, weight is placed on because being called to ministry and then serving, especially in the pastoral role and uh, other roles as well. But certainly, as uh, leading the church, there's nothing like the pressure because. Uh, you never clock out. You're never not pastor of whatever church you're at. Um, it's three o'clock in the morning and you wake up and you're thinking about it. You're still the pastor of the church. And, um, you know, I think of uh, something I read. I think it uh, was a Cordero book, um, something uh, on the, along those lines about Pastor Burnout. And he tells about a friend, uh, was a lawyer thought the pastor was great because you're kind of beloved in the community and everyone right. thinks, you know, oh, you know, how nice and shakes your hand and everything. And, and he's the only, after he was called free from being an attorney and serving, he said the only thing that he could imagine to be more stressful is to be the president of the United States. And I was <laughs> like, well, 
you know, maybe not to that level, but there is, there is a, uh, there is a difference in actually serving that role. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, I don't know how far off topic to get, but, you know, one of the things that I feel that I've called to in ministry, not just in pastoral ministry, is to really help those that are new to ministry or that are young, because that was not a lot. There was not a lot of available help or support from the church at large uh, entering into that. Right. There's a lot of lip service, a lot of encouragement, but not yes. a lot of help. And there's, um, and I think that's something every person wants to enter ministry. I, I've had people um, that I've talked to, friends, they feel the call. They're they're looking. At, uh, enrolling in seminary or whatever it may be, and and they don't know what to do. Like I had one individual, they were asked serving a church in an interim time. Well, I don't do. I want to go to school first. I want to do that, and and they had served in other roles. I'm like, why don't you do something like that that you know is not permanent, um, so you can have experience? Because there's nothing like experiencing what you know that's going to be like and what the pressure is going to be and what the demands of of the role are going to be and you might find that, you know that is what god called you to or you might find that you yes you are called to ministry but maybe uh form right yeah i mean 100 percent. i mean i think that 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 is you know that's great that you're getting into that because i do i do think that there is a there is a burden for that i mean in the church today that there doesn't seem to be uh, necessarily a support system for that and, and it could be you know for a variety of different reasons but you know the, when someone's going into ministry that's one thing to say that but there's a lot to think about that when when you're doing that what am i going to do am i going to go to seminary am i going to go straight pastoral role um and you know now we live in a day and age where it's almost expected that you have to go to have some type of schooling to be in that type of role in, in the first place and there's all type of expectations that you have to think about and and you know, try to live up to, but, you know, guiding people along in that, I believe is, is extremely important. Um, you talk about just kind of, you know, do it, dive into a little bit what you've done with that and some people you've helped out. Well, I haven't had that many opportunities, taken every opportunity I've had, I guess I should say. Um, I just, um, whenever I've served in pastoral ministry and there's always a need for people, and a lot of times it's a staff role. Hmm. And that's one of the things that the Lord is always faithful to send that person at the right time hmm. and identify yeah. that person. Um, I can think of um, one individual, and it, and it usually happens to be someone that I can help. One, that just share briefly, when I was at previous church, we were in need of a youth minister. There was a a young lady that had just graduated was 21 and I can still remember the day sitting in my office, receiving her resume, printing it out uh, and looking at it. And I just felt the Lord said is the person. And I can remember calling her the very first conversation and how she stopped when she answered the phone, but she said, you're the only person to ever pronounce my name correctly. And, uh, but that was just opportunity to give her that chance in ministry to minister to you, to do what she was called to do at that time and uh, just help to, uh, I'm, I'm a very hands-off person because I'm not a, uh, I don't like to micromanage people. I'm not that kind of person. I'm a very person. So it's just in my nature to not be that way, but I also want someone to develop their gifts and not do what I tell them to do. I think we get the idea that we need to train people to do what someone else has done, but we need to train them to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, what God has called them to do, what he's leading them to do, and support them in that. And uh, just in the example of that young lady, we uh, it was around Thanksgiving time. Uh, I think she had served with me a couple years. Um, we went to lunch uh, one day, uh, my family and uh, with her. And she just said, you know, I didn't hear any of your message after you read a quote from Hudson Taylor speaking to a man in China that uh, said, uh, you know, my father died with good news and how long 
the good news in England. And she said, oh, that's all I can think about. And the Lord called her to perform mission field. And she's been serving now for over two years, I believe, Islamic country. And that is just how the Lord helped in that ministry. And that, and that's a prime example. And, and it's not like I have those opportunities all the time, but when you have that, it's just a blessing to see how the Lord works. You know, because that's really how the church ought to function is to be sending people out to do the work of ministry. You know, we get this idea we need to bring people in, we need to hold on to them. No, we're supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're supposed to be sending people out. And yes. uh, I, I think of my home church, I can think of all the people that uh, they were either serving on staff and how many people have been sent out and served the king in vocational ministry mm. just because the attitude that we're going to send people out to do God's work. We're not going to just retain and build our own kingdom. And God always sends people to replace those people. And, right. and that, and, and it's just like you read in the book of Acts. That's the most difficult thing is losing someone mm-hmm. that, that you just enjoy working with or whatever it may be, or you think is vital to your ministry. But sometimes, you know, that's not what Lord's plan is for their life, but he always sends somebody else. Yes. A hundred percent. Um, yeah, I love what you said, you know, earlier about earlier about that about equipping equipping people um to to do that. I mean, a lot of and Dr. Bill Cashin talking about this a little bit. A lot of what churches um uh or pa- pastors dive into now is a CEO type role, right? Instead of the shepherd role, um there's an issue in the American church today that he was talking about called the CEO role, where the church is almost treated like a business where, you know, the employees have to be kept, we have to retain people. Um, we have to micromanage people, but you know, I, I, I'm, that's not necessarily the way that it should go. And I imagine one thing you mentioned about being hands off. I mean, have you found that to be successful? I mean, have you found that where giving people that opportunity to, um, to really use their spiritual gifts and rely on the Holy Spirit themselves has, has found, have you found seeing God working in that situation? Yes. And I think that's prime example. Um, I, I can think of nearly anyone that I've served with, I can see God developing them. I, I feel like um, I feel like that is the outlook we should have as as just the body of Christ when we're when we're working with people um, in our church or those that you disciple personally. You want to see that growth hmm. in that person. Uh, and we're so, and especially, you know, as Baptists, we're very statistical and numbers driven and, and there's no nothing wrong with studying those things. But we also, I use a saying a lot in sermons, you know, God is not as concerned about the outcome as he is about how you turn out, not mm. about what, how things turn out, about how you turn out. He wants yeah. to develop people more and more into the image of Christ is what his word says. So that should be our concern because all the other things are byproducts of people growing in Christ and uh, and serving that way. And I think that's that should really be our focus. I think we worry too many times about things that uh, are really inconsequential that will take care of themselves if we just focus on the things that told us. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with the, with, the, with the churches you've served at, uh, we talked about this a little bit on the phone, um, you know, that first church you were at, there was there was some struggle there was some struggle going on and the church was in um was in a difficult a difficult spot at the time. Can you talk about just um just going into that, especially as your first maybe not you know you serve as interim but as your first pastoral role. Just um you know, you were an interim and then going into that you know staying as the pastor. Can you talk about how how that was as as they were going through a difficult time? It's very interesting, and I've never known anything different. Uh, and I think I told you on the phone, I never wanted to be that guy because I knew a guy, uh, a pastor, uh, who who for many decades really was called and was the church, and he was the repair guy. He was called into some very bad situations. Um, I, I, I went to that church. I'll back up to my first long-term interim position was even one, uh, not a church that was struggling, but it was uh, difficult for me. I mean, the church was uh, was doing well. Long-term pastor had retired. Um, 
I was just called as an interim. They had great attendance, great budget, great you know, things going on. Um, but it didn't end well for me. It was a very hostile place. I had no, no idea what to expect. I ended up being dismissed from there after about 18 months, um, which created kind of a stink in the, in the church. Um, and from there, uh, I went on to uh, another one. Pri- previous to prior church, I stayed about six months at this small church, and, uh, and they had asked me to stay on. I just didn't feel the Lord was calling me there. Uh, but they were struggling. And um, and so I've always uh, ended up in those situations. And the reason I brought that up is the Lord puts you in places in ministry to prepare you for what's next. And he always does that. And if it hadn't been for that hostile situation, I wouldn't be as well equipped to deal with the people next year. And had it not been for some of the situations in my previous church, I would not be as well equipped to deal with uh, some things my present ministry and you know you walk into a church that's struggling and i guess it's a trite to the people really do they need love they need to know that you care uh you need to get to know people and that sort of thing but also when you walk in there it's kind of that making that diagnosis if you will what is the problem here you, you really have to do a lot of research and gather information, and you look at a church history. You know, do they have a lot of pastors with short tenures? And, you know, you because, you know, you walk into a struggling church, sometimes the first problem, they say, well, our previous pastor, he was just horrible, and, 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 and he needed to go or whatever. Yeah, but you've had 10 for two years, and they were all horrible. So, so the problem it extended past that person. Um, like my previous ministry, the pastor had been there uh, over 10 years, uh, and they were just in a position where they had struggled. Uh, there was not a very happy departing for him. That had created a lot of strife in the church. The church was struggling financially. They had met to determine whether or not they would exist or not, and and they were dwindling down to anything. And the first time I went there just to fill in on a Sunday morning, I left and said, I hope I never see these people again. And, and, <laughs> and, and that didn't work out so well. Um, but, but you identify those things and you try to, you don't know what to do. You just have to pray through everything and see how the Lord will lead. I, I believe that if the Lord wants a work to continue, he'll provide for it to continue. And sometimes he may not. And that's okay, too. Right. Um, so much of the focus, you know, especially in Paul's letters is unity. And although there may be differences in, in terms of the, uh, d- the division in the early church, I mean, most much of it could have been ethnic, ethnic background with you know, Jewish and um, Gentile feuding. But also a lot of it was tradition, tradition based and, and practice between the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, but still, the, the point being that Paul makes a strong point of unity within the church and uh, that that seems to be an emphasis that you know we might need to put on today there, there does seem to be a lot of division in, in churches I mean um, you know just when when you kind of deal with that kind of what is what is your your strategy I mean, because you have to listen to both sides sometimes it's it's difficult because you have different you have differing opinions and there's there's power struggles I mean how do you kind of go about that well, that this will be a long answer. Um, it's fine. Go, go you have it. to, you have to look at, and it really goes back to that diagnosing. You listen to all sides because in any church that's struggling, there is going division, and there is that uh, in about nearly every church, uh, there is a certain. Uh, it can be a group person. Uh, in some cases, it's a Sunday school class. In some cases, it's a committee. Um, or it could just be one toxic individual that stirs all of that up. And, and you really have to identify that and, uh, and see what is going on. Uh, that is, uh, I think Tom here calls that the uh, cartel. And that's really what it is. The people that, that control everything. Um, and... That creates a lot of disunity in the church. That's been my experience. And uh, uh, so there are 
a couple things there. Practically, sometimes some toxic people just have to go. Uh, I think that uh, we do not practice what the Bible says uh, as often as we should uh, regarding those sorts of things. I, I'm not saying you go and you disagree with person of uh, something, you know, immaterial. Right. And, but church and, discipline as a whole is uh, just right. Is but but if you have, um, I can think of a particular example. If you have a toxic person has been there through short past or 10 years <laughs> and has been the root cause of a problem, who knows everything about every problem and was involved, uh, you can be pretty sure that that person is the problem. And uh, if they, you know, discipline over spirit, uh, you have to do something. And, and I, the only reason I say that is this, because one of my uh, biggest regrets in ministry, and this is really my former church, is because of my nature, I was not willing to deal head on with some of those problems as boldly or as quickly as I should. And that was something that uh, I had settled you know, just from a practical matter that when I came to this ministry here, that I was not going to do that. Is that that not only affects, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that not only affects me being able to minister at the church, it affects me as a minister, it affects me in my family life. And if I can't minister to my family, then I can't, you know, certainly can't minister to somebody else. Right. And so those things have to be dealt with. And so that's a point of unity. And I think it just comes back, you know, what Peter's judgment must begin. Time has come. It must begin at the house of God and we have to look at those things and, and, and be and be fair, and be prayerful, and be loving about it. But sometimes things have to happen. Um, the main point about unity in the church is that the church can get united around the wrong things. Mm. Um, you mentioned even in Paul's day, different struggles over uh, practices or traditional things. And, uh, and that can be a struggle in the church is, is you know, there's a certain unity around traditionalism. I won't say tradition, but just traditionalism and being set a certain way. And there can be a group of people that buy for that all the time. I think of a quote that I love, can't remember the reference and I uh, can never find it, but it says that uh, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith, the dead. And that's really what we want to remember. You know, a lot of our worship traditions, yes, they are traditions, but we do those things because those are the um, orthodox historic practices of the Christian faith that yep. God has laid out in his word, not because someone says we had to do it this way. And I think part of bringing unity to a church from a leadership perspective, not that we can do it in and of ourselves, but is really getting the church focused on what should we be united about um, and not divide into many factions and what do you think about this and all these uh, these practical points that we disagree on, but we're supposed to agree. I mean, we can't have fellowship if we don't agree on the word of God. God says what he means and he means what he says, and this is what he's going to do, and this is how the church should operate. And so we have to unite around the things that we are true. And there also has to be a unity in the church around a um, around a vision of where the church is going. And that's a very difficult thing to do, because right. when you're talking about a struggling church, it's difficult to go into a place that is really about to fail and say, well, this is, and it's even harder to say as a pastor, well, this is what God is leading us to do, because you really have no clue what God's leading you to do. You're trying to still determine what's going on uh, and just um, and look at everything, you know, with an open mind. But a lot of disunity when you're talking about moving to church, looking uh, moving forward is uh, is in that disunity of vision, because if you ask the average church member, you go in a church and you ask them, what would you like to see? What is your personal preference even? You know, not just take, what is your, what would you like to see? Where would you like to see the church go? 
and they say, uh, you know, well, we want to have what we used to have. And that's usually what it is. We want to have this many kids or we want to have the people we used to have. Uh, you know, I had pe- I would, I would, people tell me that, you know, we want to have all the kids we used to have. I'm like, well, the kids you're talking about are all dying. You know, I mean, you yeah. want to go back to a time that was 50 years ago. And that that's not a vision. It's just uh, a dream of, of returning to something that can never be. Church really needs to come together and say, you know, we want to be united around what God wants us to do. And, and, and that's the bottom line. It's it's about what the Lord wants to do. That's why Paul says in all days we're to preserve the unity of the Spirit, bond of peace. And the church needs to, to remember that the reason we are united is not because we call ourselves Baptist to join the same church together, but it's because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are all a part of the body of Christ. And we want to serve as he wants us to serve in role, wherever he's places, whatever church or ministry we're in. And uh, if we recognize that, then we know that the Holy Spirit's sovereign in all of that. He's going to do what God wants to accomplish in that ministry. So it's really about us saying, you know, we want to pray together as we're supposed to, be united in prayer, uh, united in mind. And wherever God leads, we're going to be malleable in our preferences and our you know, own opinions to what the Lord wants to do. Because if if a Christian does not desire to see those that have never heard the gospel or have refused the gospel come to faith in Jesus Christ, then there's something wrong with that Christian. They're out of step with the mission that Christ sent us to do. Uh, and that's really where, where when we're united around Christ's mission uh, to seek and to save that which is lost, uh, that puts a lot of that to bed. Yes, no, 100%. I love that. And um, yeah, you mentioned earlier, this was great. I mean, you can be unified around the wrong things. And I believe it was Paul to the Corinthian church says something along the lines of that he does not want anything else to be known among the, amongst the Corinthians church um, except Christ and Christ crucified, that that is what they proclaim. If we unite ourselves around the wrong mission, even if we have good um, plans in place, you know, a good process and the right ideas, um, if we're united around the wrong mission, and we're going to have going to have a lot of problems. So I, I love what I love what you said there. I mean, that that was perfect. So, um, kind of diving into you know a topic we wanted to discuss tonight was, was obviously one of the things we have to be united around is the person of Jesus Christ and who it is and who He is. And um, there's so much disagreement today, especially in the world, because what we see in the world is this type of um, a lot of Christians, people that call themselves Christians or even non-Christians use Jesus as a watchword to basically for their own political purposes, right? Jesus is this loving figure and doesn't confront sin. And, um, and you know, there's been you know, talk of with other churches that he's unhitched from the Old Testament. I'm sure you have seen that. A lot of what the world, how the world displays Jesus today is not how it is in the scripture. And you talked about the importance of the word of God earlier. How important is Word of God is the basis for how we look at Jesus Christ. It is everything as far as how we develop uh, our view of Christ himself and our worldview for everything that we look at. Because if, uh, if we do not believe and worship God as he reveals himself in his word, uh, we worship a God of our own understanding, or really of our own imagination, our own creation. And uh, it's what the Bible calls idolatry. And God has revealed himself through his word. He has said he has spoken through his word. He says he's revealed himself in this time through his son. And we should look at what Jesus actually says. And that's the main point with society is we will pick one sentence of what Jesus said, not look at things in context, try to create a fictional Jesus that is not who he revealed himself to be and not the words that he said. But there is enough uh, just biblical uh, quotation from Jesus himself uh, to undergird about every Christian doctrine. 
uh, that that we believe the fundamental things that is uh, erroneous to say that Jesus didn't make some claims that he did, and uh, and so we we draw all those things from the scripture, and we believe by faith those things to be true because the Lord's proven it, and His word is alive. He's right, right. Have you have you seen just um you know, if you'd like to dive in, just talk about this a little bit. Have you seen the stuff going on with with Andy Stanley and, and the uh, and the talking about? Of course, as we're filming this today, um, very sad news to hear that Charles Stanley has passed, and um, we mourn in that because of you know of his faithful gospel ministry and just the uh, you know we, we we mourn for the family there. Um, but talking about his son Andy Stanley, there's there there seems to be a bit of a a uh, concerning thing going on right now where he he said recently that. We don't necessarily imply that we don't necessarily need the Old Testament in order to be Christians, in order to understand. We just need the words in the New Testament, and specifically said the words of Jesus, kind of just detaching Jesus from a lot of, of Scripture. Have you kind of have seen what's going on there? I have seen some of that, and I don't know exactly what he meant. Uh, I've read some of his explanations. I am, uh, I'm not a person that's going to here and another minister. I, I don't think that uh, we ought to, to do that. Uh, there are some statements he's made even more recently that I would question a little bit about what he's saying or question a lot. Uh, but in regard to that, uh, I don't know exactly what he was uh, trying to say. I, I think in one of his explanations, I think he he was uh, just trying to say that we should not, uh, you know, look to the Old Testament to draw um, fundamental legalistic type things out of it, right. and, and that may be, and that would I would agree with, but uh, perhaps he went a bit too far, and uh, you know, uh, that's him to explain exactly what he meant, right. and, uh, and it would be good if someone would ask him that. Yeah, for sure. I saw this video, and one thing we have to do is we we have to get a TV for for the podcast so we can like we can watch watch videos. That it's in the works. It's in the works. It's, it's going to happen. But um, we um, I saw a video. I was watching it earlier today. It was uh, it was Robert Jefferson. He, what he was discussing um, some of the he was discussing with this gay Catholic priest some some of the some of the things about the faith, and it was at the time of the uh, the whole. Uh, Baker refusing to to make the cake for for the couple and it was a controversial time and um one thing that he said you know about the word of God that we were you know, we just kind of were talking about is uh Robert Jeffress continued to reference scripture and continue to reference what Jesus said and the and the the um the Catholic priest says well the word of God has evolved and that seems to be also a very um problematic view that somehow the meaning of God's word changed since the original authors have written it down. Do you think that's kind of a tactic of the world today to to say that God's word is changing some? Absolutely. It's, it's a tactic, and it's not necessarily a new tactic because God has told us his word is, is eternal and unchanging, that the grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And the psalmist said it's forever settled in heaven. So it is as God intended. Um, but that is the same tactic that we read in Genesis account. It's, uh, you know, Satan is uh, presiding over this world system. He is in authority over the way it operates. And he uses the same tactics he used in the beginning. And the first question he asked was, has God said? And then it uh, turned not only into doubting has God said something, it turned to you know, God's lying about what he's saying. And that is all that is anytime someone tries to say that. I mean, that God has changed his view on anything. And I think, you know, speaking of the Old Testament, that's what the New Testament clearly defines for us is that all those things were given as examples for us and for our admonition, not that we're to draw any any sort of legalistic document Old Testament were to look at those things and, and, and you, you you say you really want an opinion on how God feels about a certain subject that's relevant to the world today and we'll look at how he dealt 
the Old Testament with his people, pagan nations, and you say, well, that's how God feels. Very clear. It's not changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I, I'm excited about the opportunity to kind of actually dive into a few scriptures um, if, if you want to go ahead and, and dive into that. Um, one thing that, that is talked about is, um, or denied, um, sadly, is that it, is people will deny that Jesus in his deity and say that Jesus is not God. And if we could just, you know, kind of talk about John 8, 58 specifically, um, I'll just kind of read it and let you dive into it, if, if that's okay with you. But, um, you know, I was, I was watching a video and um, it was a pastor and he was talking about a lot of people like Jesus until you say really say who um what the bible says about him right until you really present jesus as how he is how he really is people people love the jesus that's presented in the world today but when we present jesus as who he truly is that's when people seem to, to have issues but one of the claims especially from um in, in islam is one of the claims is that jesus never claims to be god but we want to set the record straight and say that that is certainly not the case so john eight fifty eight. Um, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders and, and, and um, Jewish scribes and, and, you know, adversaries of his at the moment. And he talks about um, how before Abraham was, I am. And so what I'll do is I'll just kind of read this little passage here. I'll just start at, um, at verse 55 and then just kind of let you dive into it. But you know, he's, he's dealing with this with this issue here, and he says, um, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do not know him. Keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jews said to him, yet you, I mean, you are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was I am. And then the response here from the Jewish leaders. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Can you kind of just walk us through this text a little bit? Well, this is very clear to what we're talking about. That when anyone says that Jesus never claimed to be God, he made several statements where he says here, that I am, and every time he's made an I am statement, he's not just talk, speaking of himself, he's identifying with the name of God that God revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. I am that I am. He is the eternally uh, existing God who needs no uh, help or depends on anyone else to exist. I think he, uh, this entire passage, he uh, just reveals that. And it's very clear. I don't think there is any, uh, there can be any other argument made or any other interpretation made that you can disagree with what Jesus said, but you cannot uh, disagree that uh, this means exactly what it is that he spoke, that he claimed that he was the very God of this universe, the very God that they claimed to know and worship uh, that he was, and he was standing in front of them, not recognize it. I think he says that in a chapter to the same some people that uh, you you say you believe Moses and uh, well if you believed him you would believe in me mm -hmm. and obviously they didn't. Right and, and so important in in this I, I like in love what you point out the Old Testament connection there understanding the context of what's going on here is important because if we just read the sentence well it just kind of seems like Jesus is saying a, a wild state. Um, and this is, you know, kind of the Muslim claim. I hear I hear Muslims say, well, point to me a place in Scripture where Jesus says, I am God and worship me, um, which is kind of, you know, in, um, putting into or inserting 21st century standards of communication into 2,000 year ago, years ago um, the way they spoke. But understanding the context here shows us that what Jesus was doing actually is claiming to be God. Um, and then the response in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw picked up stones to throw at him. I mean, it seems that there wouldn't be much of another reason um, to throw stones at him unless he was claiming to actually be actually be be God. I mean thoughts you have, you have there. Well it, it, it's, it's 
that was their always accusing the Lord of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And, um, and, and, the, and you see that here, and you see, uh, you know, in, in an earlier verse, you see how stite they are. In verse 41, they said that we were not born of fornication. In other words, you know, we're not born of fornication like you. You know, your moral relationship. Uh, that is just how uh, you know, snide and cruel they were to, him, to try to say that he um, he couldn't possibly be God. And and so he's not only proving and stating that he is God, but he's also proving that uh, no, he is a in fact the sinless virgin-born son of God, exactly who he claimed to be. And uh, is what the scripture represents to us. Right, definitely. Um, and then and then also talking about not just Jesus as God, is there anything else you want to point out before I, we kind of play? So, um, but Jesus also is man and as a sinless, sinless man who, who keeps all, all of the, um, all the, all the law. One thing, maybe just jump to Philippians 2, 7, because, you know, one thing that I've always, and this is just kind of a theological topic of discussion, um, is jumping there. I mean, is how much did, so Jesus takes on the form of man, yet he's still 100% God. Well, how much did he know as a man? Um, and, and, and this is also talking a lot about, and I don't want to take it out of the context there and not be proper to the context here. A lot of this is, is talking about Christ's example of humility and how that's important for us in the way we should act. And, and you know, that's, that's important to keep in context where Paul's writing. So I don't want to just read a verse and, and take that out there. So um, that is not my goal. But it says, um, speaking of Christ here, you know, starting in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, qual- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I remember when I was young, this first gave me a lot of um, trouble. And, you know, I need to say something, it was something to think about and some interesting discussions with my father. So, can you just kind of talk a little bit about this text, if you don't mind? Sure. And you know, this is very clear the attitude of Christ that he was, that he willingly came to take on the day, but specifically, about this verse, I think uh, you're referring to that he emptied himself, uh, and, and there is uh, a lot of debate, I guess, about that. Um, but really, in in my view, and I believe what the scripture teaches is that uh, you know Jesus was fully God; he was fully man. Uh, when he took on the form of a human, he did not cease to be God, but his humanity. Um, Failed his deity. Uh, you know, when we think about God, just think about that for a second. That um, the God of eternity that uh, had communion with Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses could not look upon him, uh, and he was allowed to see his uh, hinder parts moving by, and. The glory was so great that of a basket over his head, right? So uh, that's the God we're dealing with. Uh, if we, you know, think of it that way, the deity of Christ had to be veiled because if we, as uh, sinful, unrepentant people, were to stand in the presence of a holy God, the Bible says is a consuming fire, yeah. we would probably likely incinerate or something to that effect. We would not be able to stand it. And that is what he had to do in order to uh, to be revealed to us so that we could, um, you know, as John says, it was so we could behold his glory. But also I think part of that is that Christ had to, um, he had to take on a human body because the eternal God of heaven cannot die. And so he had to take on mortality in a physical body that could suffer the death of the cross um, for us. And that is just part of the work of God. And, and it, we will never fully understand, it, it goes back to the question you asked you, what did Jesus know when he was on the earth? Right. Um, 
you know, I think John Calvin said that Christ was uh, omniscient as he was omnipresent. And that might be an extreme way of putting it, um, but his deity was veiled. He was always God, but how it was expressed or revealed was different because it was through the form of a human person. And the Bible says he is the visible image of the invisible God. So he is what we have seen of God. I believe he's all we'll ever see of God as far as the visible image of the invisible God. That that is how God chose to reveal himself as a man that could identify uh, with his people. But, you know, there are, are just a few scriptures that lend to that about, you know, what did he know? Jesus Speaking of his second advent, he said, no man knows the hour that he didn't know, but only the Father uh, in heaven knew of that at that exact time. Now, would we say, well, Christ in heaven today doesn't know when he's coming back? I mean, that would be absurd to say. He did not know at that present time when he was in human form what uh, exactly the time of his return would be. He knew what, you know, he was what was revealed to him to share. And that is, and, and I, uh, I'll i risk it being put on these. I, I don't think I'm uh, known by anybody to put on like heretic reel or something. But I believe when we when we look at uh, Christ coming in human form, I believe the scripture reveals that everything Jesus did, he didn't as God, but he did as a man filled, anointed the Holy Spirit. And I know there's a lot of theological debate about that. It's not that he ceased to be God. He was eternal God, but his deity was was veiled in that form of human flesh. So he is both things. But I believe that for the benefit of his children, that he demonstrated everything he did, every miracle he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what he said. He said, and uh, uh, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he said, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel uh, to the poor, to um, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to uh, set free those who are oppressed. And I, I think that Christ operated in that way. And I think every part of Jesus' life, we see the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. We see right. that from his conception. We see that to his resurrection, that the same, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that lives in us. He was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think, I think the scripture uh, teaches us that in this way. Jesus became a man to live as a man. Uh, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities because he was in all points tempted, yet without sin. We have a, a, a high priest seated at the right hand of God who understands human emotion, who understands how humans feel because he lived as a man, and he lived in that way so that he could live a perfect life, give his life on the cross for our sins, die in our place so that we could be made in his likeness by the power of his Holy Spirit. And I think he demonstrated everything he did by the anointing, the filling, the Holy Spirit upon him so that he could... Uh, show what power of God is available and what God wants to do in the life of the average Christian. It doesn't mean we're going to operate like Jesus in this uh, earth uh, perfectly because we can't live sinlessly. We, we don't have the birth that he did, and we're not God. Uh, we're so much more finite than the infinite God, but he demonstrated to us uh, what it is like to live in the power of God, the life that that he that he called us to live. He said he called to, to, for Christians to live a life that was more fun. He not only said that, that his spirit within his children, having a relationship with him would be a um, well of water springing up eternal life, but he said it would that rivers of living water would flow from our innermost being. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of the problem with the modern church today, I think we live way below uh, what uh, Jesus died to give us. I think that we uh, live way below in the power that he died to give us. I think we live way below the joy he, 
he died to give us. I yeah. mean, the writer of Hebrews tells us very uh, plainly, he is our uh, rest. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our promised land. He fulfilled all of that for us to have in this life. Are we going to have the full fulfillment of that now? No, because we still live in this body that's going to get old. It's going to decay. It's going to die and it's going to you know go away. But it one day will be uh, according to his word. And that is uh, Jesus lived that perfect life and gave that example because he wanted to show us uh, this is the life he's calling us to. Right. He's calling us to live and walk in his power. And uh, and the reason I believe that we don't uh, experience that today in the modern church, you know, we're too distracted by other things, for one. I think, uh, you know, we've gotten in this uh, vein of thinking uh, that we can live as we please. and God's going to forgive us anyway. Uh, you know, we've taken the fact that we're eternally secure in Christ and seated in heavenly places to think that we can just do whatever we want to and that there's not uh, going to be any consequence for that. And it's yeah. not, uh, we always get the idea, well, we're going to uh, yeah. sin against God. We're going to wrong him and he's going to come down and he's going to shoot a bolt of lightning. He's just going to damn us instantly. That's not what's going to happen, but we're going to lose out on what he provided for us. And you see that in the lives of the apostles. They gave everything. They gave their own lives for Christ and for his kingdom, for his gospel. And God manifested himself in power in the same way that he did through Jesus. That's not, I'm not saying we can be apostles. We were never uh, in the presence of Jesus. But the same power that rested on them is the same power that lives in the hearts of Christians. And if we would recognize that and yield to that, uh, we would see a lot different things happening in our own lives and the life of the church. And uh, we've just gotten into this place. I think it is it is a part of uh, Christian life where too often we reflect uh, what Jesus said to the Laodicean church. You know, they said, I'm rich. I have need of nothing. And he said, you know, you do not realize that you are poor, naked, wretched, miserable, and blind. And if we would ever recognize how much we need him and we need him every day, it would just change the way that right and i don't know why i went off on a long answer on that no but. you're fine i mean and it seems it seems almost that to diminish to diminish the um ability of the holy spirit to work in the lives of believers is also to diminish the word of christ right because because it's kind of a twofold thing well you know and, and um and of course there may be disagreement in the church of what spiritual gifts we have and you know but all that aside we all believe, we all must believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit lives within us and works through us. Um, and to say that we have no power in that is is actually, you know, I think that's kind of the point. That's the point. One of the points you made is that actually diminishes the work of Jesus because his example is to show us the um, obviously an unattainable um, standard, but the standard of what we of what we can do. Uh, and and do you think do you think um, part of that you know, taking the form of a man, I like, and I like how you broke that down. And you still point out, you know, Jesus was God, but as a man, he had to be sinless so that he could fulfill the law where we couldn't. Is that kind of the point that, that you would make? Is that part of the reason he has to do these, has to be perfect as, as it is this perfection as a man is so he can, um, even though he's still God, he's, he's perfecting, He's being perfect as a man so he can, you know, atone for um, and fulfill the, fulfill the law. Yes. And he he had to he had to take on the form of human flesh in order to be sinless. God is sinless. He's the God that cannot lie. Um, but that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He had to be tempted at every point. It's, it's not that he um, was just God coming here who is exists sinlessly and going to live sinlessly. It is that he was tempted and in every form, but he uh, lived sinlessly. Of course, he wasn't born with a sin nature, but he did that so that um, there would not be any doubt uh, that he was God, that his sacrifice was sufficient uh, to save. And that is uh, you know, the whole point about Jesus being born of a virgin, of Jesus living a sinless life is that if he was not sinless, then he was not God. 
and uh, it proves that he was God. If he was not sinless, he was not worthy to die. And if he was not worthy to die, then his death was in vain and his sacrifice means nothing to us and, and we're all going to hell and there's nothing we can do about it. But he was sinless. He was the perfect sacrifice. Uh, his blood was able, the Bible says by one sacrifice, he was able to perfect forever all those that he sanctified. And, uh, and it was perfectly sufficient for that. And we, uh, we know uh, these things. Uh, we know that, in fact, he was sinless and, and that his life was perfect and his sacrifice, he was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world without blemish or spot because he rose from the dead. God would not have raised him if he had been sinless. He would have died like everybody else if he had been sinful. But because he was sinless, God raised him as evidence uh, that he was uh, God, uh, that he was perfect, and that his sacrifice had been accepted in heaven, not sprinkled on earthly mercy seat for the covering of sin, but on the eternal heavenly mercy seat to forever make a covering for every person with their faith in Christ. Yeah, amen, 100%. And so we talk about all those things of Jesus being God and man um, and sinless, and, um, and then our fellowship with him and then the power we have in the Holy Spirit. Um, but, but one thing, you know, I mean, one thing that seems to, uh, to always put people, divide people, and, and maybe put people to stand still is when you say Jesus is the only way. But we see that's what Jesus says. And, um, we see in John 14, 6, maybe we can turn there, but no, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Talk about Jesus as the only way to salvation. Well, and it really is in the same vein. If Jesus is not the only way, then he's none of the ways. Hmm. Uh, because he uh, very clearly uh, stated he was the way, and that would make him a liar, uh, just plain and simple. Uh, but uh, the fact that uh, that is a controversial belief does not change what the Lord said, and it does not change the historic, Orthodox practice and belief of the Christian faith since the resurrection of Christ, or since the day of Pentecost, really, I should say, um, that, that in fact, I lost my train. No, you're fine. That he is uh, the only uh, way of salvation. I mean, yeah. it, there is no basis for our faith if we do not uh, believe that he is uh, the only way. And, and thank you. You know, God even reveals that uh, later, later epistle, relating back to the uh, Old Testament that all faiths are of the way of Cain. Uh, every faith, um, no matter what uh, they claim they do or can do for you or whatever they may say, no matter what they teach, um, everything requires a person to do something. Everything is based, and that's what Cain demonstrated very early on in human history, that, that his religion was uh, by, his, uh, by his own works and what he could produce, and uh, uh, that, that is what makes the, um, the gospel so simple, and it makes it so beautiful, but it also makes it so clear that Jesus is the only way, because he is saying, I am the one that's, uh, that I'm the one that came, I'm the one that died, I rose again, I'm the one that provided this way. And I am the only way. And I and the, you know, what's the Bible said? There's one mediator, God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. And that is the only way that we're going to come into a relationship with God. Now, uh, anyone can say well, they don't like that or they think that's not inclusive or whatever. But, you know, he is God. He proved himself to be God. And he can set the rules. And he said that is how it is. And uh, unless we do that, we will not see God. John 3, he that uh, believes is not condemned, and he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed. Yeah, wow. That, that's awesome, and, and love what you said to me. Just because views are controversial does not take away from the fact that Jesus was clear um, in his teaching. But um, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you doing this. I love the opportunity to, to dive into Scripture, and uh, appreciate you doing this and thank you uh, is there anything else you want to mention for no thank you so much for having me and i you know i i just want to say for go i really enjoy the work you do here i view this every week and i just uh, 
pray that it continues to be blessed. I, I really enjoy the, the product you put out and uh, thankful that you're doing it. So, awesome. So thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you, Matthew. Me and Thomas really appreciate that. And we just, we hope God's being glorified through it. That's all the ultimate goal. And, uh, and certainly tonight, um, believe that happens. So, but, um, thank you so much. And, um, thank you all for tuning in. I'm Wilson Paris and that's a good word. Thank you.